0: Welcome back to church. We are so glad you could be here today. If you're glad to be here, why don't you say amen? Amen. Amen. Welcome. Today, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. We're very excited about this particular passage because it's part number three of our sermon series, Clue. Understanding the mystery of grace. Now, if you're new to the church, it's a perfect Sunday to show up. It's a perfect day to be here. Here's why. You find ourselves smack dab right in the middle of a sermon series where we're discovering and uncovering and discovering specifically the mystery of God's grace in four specific sermons that cover four specific visual aids. We're studying Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 all about God's grace and the gospel. And we've talked about four specific sermons with four specific visual aids. And the first one was the chair with the sermon entitled, does anybody remember what the sermon was entitled? The chair, chair, correct. Give this man a round of applause. He remembered because he cheated. No, I'm kidding. All right, very good. In the first sermon, we said it's entitled the chair. The chair, what did we say? It's easy to understand the grace of God in the gospel when you understand these visuals. First of all, the chair. We said that the chair symbolizes God's salvation. And salvation is given by God's grace, and we obtain it through faith. We only need to put our full trust, weight, and dependence upon Christ, and when we do, we are born again. The chair tells us salvation comes by grace through faith. In the second sermon, uh, we talked about another visual aid that was last week. Does anybody remember the name of that sermon? The goat, that's right. And we had a live goat out here. Let's bring him back out. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. It's not here. <laughs> so of you got so excited. You're like, I came for the goat. Well, go to a farm because we only have the goat once in a while, right? And the goat symbolized this. The goat symbolized that the sacrifice had to happen. The sacrifice, what did it do? Well, it purified God's people and unified God's people, both Jew and Gentile together. And that's what we studied in Ephesians chapter 2. That the goat symbolizes that the sacrifice both purified God's people and unified God's people. That's chapter 2. And so you can completely understand Ephesians chapter 2 through these two concepts. We have salvation by grace through faith. And we have the goat who sacrificed himself, Jesus Christ. And through the sacrifice of Christ, the people of God have been purified, and unified. That leads us to the third sermon in the series, and it's entitled, The Magnifying Glass. Go ahead and say that with me. The magnifying glass. This magnifying glass is a visual. I want you to picture it in your mind, the same way you picture the chair and the same way you picture the goat. Now you picture in your mind this magnifying glass. This magnifying glass tells us this. The closer you look at suffering, the more you begin to see God knows what he's doing. The closer, look closer and discover the mystery of his perfect plan. Do you believe, do you, I mean really, do you believe that God knows what he's doing? How many of you would say today, Pastor Josh, I'm not perfect, but I really do. I believe God knows what he's doing. Say amen. Yeah, absolutely. God knows what he's doing. Absolutely, completely convinced. God knows what he's doing. Most of the time, God does know what he's doing. Some of the time, most of the time when God is doing things with others, he definitely knows what he's doing. Sometimes with me, he messes up. But other people, most of the time, most of the time God is like on his game. If you're gonna grade God on his, on his, on his game, on his job, job performance, job performance review. Job performance review for God, B minus, most of the time B, B plus, sometimes. Uh, most of the time he knows what he's doing. How many of you would say God gets a solid A-plus on knowing what he's doing? Can I get an amen? amen. Right, sure. Well, we would think so, but maybe, maybe sometimes we get upset with God because we're thinking, okay, God, you did well last year, and you did well the year before, but this year you're kind of messing things up a little bit. Anybody here would like to apply for God's job um, because you think you do a better job? Anybody want to apply for the job of God? Anybody want to raise your hand? I would be God because God's not doing it well enough. Anybody? Raise your hand. This would be a fun moment. Uh, I was, I'm a little worried. Okay. Okay. (laughs) They were like, I could be God. (laughs) Bad idea, right? Why? Because no matter how much we might think, I don't know what he's doing, we still deep down believe he's got to know what he's doing. But then we're dealing with our own issues, our own problems, our own sufferings, And then we get really honest and we look at the sufferings of other people, the suffering of the world, or the suffering of the innocent, and we really begin to question, does God, I mean, honestly, preacher, does God know what he's doing? Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, give us the theology of suffering. What the Bible teaches us about suffering, why bad things happen to good people. Why suffering is in your life, my life. And here's my proposition, see the magnifying glass? Here's my proposition over the next 30 minutes. The closer you look at suffering, the more you'll discover God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. You ready to study it? If you are, say amen. Amen. Really, to study this passage, you really gotta grasp this particular truth. There are seven, and this is all by way of introduction, there are seven what I call the seven circles of suffering or the seven categories of suffering. I think this will be informative for a lot of us today, and maybe it'll categorize this in a different way than you've heard it. Here are the seven categories of suffering. Number one, there is what we call the Adamic suffering, And, and many of you have suffered because of this category of suffering. You say, what is the Adamic suffering? It means this. As children of humanity, as sons of Adam or daughters of Eve, we all suffer because of the original sin, the curse. Uh, We all are in what we call the family of Adam. We've been studying this concept these last few weeks, have we not? And in the family of Adam, what happens? Well, we understand that Adam and Eve were, were, were created, and then they sinned. And when they sinned, they brought death. The Bible's very clear about this. Death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And so the reason why we have death in the world, the reason why people die is because of the Adamic curse, Adamic suffering. Death is here because of Adam and and so is disease. Disease is part of the curse. Death and disease and deterioration, things fall apart. We call it now the law of entropy. The law of entropy meaning things get worse, right? You bought a brand new car five years ago and you're like, this is amazing. Now you're like, I hate this piece of junk. Why? Because of the law of entropy. Things deteriorate in this world. It's part of the curse. It's part of the sufferings of Adam. It's called Adamic suffering. How many of you have lived long enough? Is this true of you? Have you lived long enough to realize uh, the law of entropy works on your body? <laughs> have, have you? Like I have. You're like, oh man, I'm 40 this year. I'm 40. And, and I'm like, oh, I, I don't feel the same. Uh, I feel like I'm dying. Welcome to church. This is to make you feel good. You're all dying. You're here for inspiration. You're all going to die. We're all dying slowly, day by day. Slowly you're dying. It's called the Adamic suffering, okay? That's that's true. All of these things are for that one. Okay, here's suffering number two. Suffering number two, we'll call it consequential suffering. Consequential suffering is um, you did something stupid and you're paying for it. Any Okay, anybody ever like Josh? You ever did something stupid and you're like, oh, I'm going through this because I was an idiot. How many of you are like that? Raise your hand. Now, not all suffering falls into this category, but some suffering does fall into this category, right? You'd, people are like, okay, imagine, right? God, God, why? <laughs> why did I have a $500 speeding ticket? Okay, so we can trace the line here, can't we, right? You have a $500 speeding ticket because you were speeding, okay? This is not on God. This is not the world is unfair. You got a a ticket because you were speeding. It's consequential, right? God, why? (laughs) I got an F on my exam. (laughs) Okay, here's why you played video games all night rather than studying for your tests. And you, you get the point? There are consequences and sometimes we suffer. Some of you are like, hey, all right, relax, dad, okay? <laughs> uh, let me do the preaching, okay, all right, here we are, all right. Consequential <laughs> suffering, right? Okay, there it is. Adamic suffering, consequential suffering, and we understand these. Number three, number three, demonic suffering. This is why it's important to understand Not everything that you go through is necessarily your fault. Let me say that again. Some things you go through suffering because you're part of the human race and we live in a broken world. Some things we go through because you did something dumb and give yourself a break, you're a dummy like everybody else, so am I. Sometimes you go through suffering because you have an enemy. Now, the moment you became a follower of Jesus Christ, the moment you received Christ as your savior, the moment you claimed teams and were baptized, you have to understand, you became a target. I don't understand these Christians. They're like, I believe in God, but I wonder if there's a devil. The same Bible that talks about a God talks about a devil. The same Bible that talks about angels talks about demons. Yes, we believe these things. And the moment you declared yourself on the winning team with Christ, you also now have an enemy, demonic spirits and the devil himself, who, who want to target you. Now, the book of Ephesians, Paul had to deal a lot with this because the church at Ephesus was going through a lot of demonic oppression. So he actually gives an entire section to this in Ephesians chapter six called the armor of God. I've got an entire sermon series coming up in September. We're making our way through Ephesians. At the end of September, I'm gonna be walking through spiritual warfare. You won't wanna miss it. It's gonna be great. Demonic suffering. Number Number four, there's another area, innocent suffering. Innocent suffering is you did, listen, this is very important for some of you to hear this. You did nothing wrong. They sinned against you. And you're suffering because of what they did to you. Innocent suffering. Now those who are experiencing consequential suffering, I don't want you to miscategorize yourself and put you here, okay? I'm talking about innocent suffering, things like abuse. You didn't do anything. But maybe they've made you feel like you did. Maybe you earned it. Maybe this is what you deserve. No, friend. You were abused and you were innocent. This is where violence often comes in. Somebody was violent toward you. You are innocent in this. Do you understand? You were innocently suffering abuse and violence, financially cheated. You didn't do anything, but you were cheated. You're innocently suffering. Do you understand? And that happens, why? Because in this broken world, mankind has free will and their free choices sometimes choose to hurt innocent people and your collateral damage. So am I. Number five, here's another type of suffering, collective suffering. Collective suffering is when a group of people are all suffering together. It, It connects often to innocent suffering, but in a collective way. Innocent suffering often takes place in solitude Collective suffering is a group of people. For example, uh, your nation is at war. Bombs are falling. Buildings are being destroyed. And you're just a daddy trying to feed your family. You're just a teenager trying to go to school. This has nothing to do with you, but collectively the people are suffering. Another type of collective suffering is you're a child and you have siblings and daddy abandons you. Mommy abandons you. Okay, now you collectively suffer. It's connected to innocent suffering, but you're doing it with others. Collective suffering. We all understand this. We all, as Christians, we, understand. we go this. We, uh, today, you might be thinking to yourself, I'd like a nice chicken sandwich. And you pull into the driving lot of Chick-fil-A. And it's closed. And with all the other people sitting in the parking lot of Chick-fil-A, you collectively suffer. have to wait till tomorrow for my chicken biscuits right collective suffering number six number six empathetic suffering empathetic suffering is I'm not hurting for myself I'm hurting because someone I love is hurting I'm suffer. I don't have cancer, but I'm suffering because they do. This is why you can't sleep, even though it's not your cancer, and you can't eat, though it's not your cancer, and you can't get your mind around. You can't focus on work, even though it's not your suffering. It's their suffering. You epithetically suffer. Right now, I've been going through this. Um, I have a dear friend who is is truly fighting uh, uh, a, a marriage battle right now, and it's really, I'm not quite sure if it's going to make it all the way through, and it's a real big problem, and, and I'll find myself awake in the middle of the night, and I can't sleep, and that's all I'm thinking about. It's not my marriage, but it's his, and I'm suffering with him, and I get on my knees, and I pray, and I say, oh, God, you got to do something. you got to do something, so it's empathetic suffering, you see, you see? Number seven, number seven, opportunistic suffering. This is the final category that I'll give today, opportunistic suffering. Opportunistic suffering is exactly what it sounds like. The suffering that you're going through can build a platform to help others. Now, in the midst of the suffering, you never wanna claim that you have opportunistic, you're never gonna say, well, this is a great moment for me to learn how to help others. No, you're just suffering. And you don't even realize it was opportunistic suffering until years later, months later, maybe decades later, that was opportunistic suffering. You never, never want to share this with somebody that you love who is suffering. You never want to go to them and be like, this is a great moment for you because you're going to learn from all of this terrible suffering. You're going to help others. They don't want to hear that. They just want you to cry with them and hold them, you see? But there is a reality of what we would call opportunistic suffering. What I went through helps me help others. With all of that, now let's look at the three things that Paul wants us to learn about suffering in, first, in, in Ephesians chapter three, one and following. The first thing he points to, number one, is this. My suffering opens my ministry. My suffering opens my ministry. The more you look deeply into the suffering of Paul, you suddenly realize that God allowed him to go through suffering because it opened opportunity for him to minister. This is the realm of opportunistic suffering. Look what it says in verses 1 and following. For this reason, Paul says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you, Gentiles. Oh, there's so much there, we've got to cover. First of all, he says for this reason. It's almost as if he's in the middle of a thought. It's because he is in the middle of a thought. He's bridging from chapter two. For this reason, for what reason, Paul? Well, for this reason, that salvation is by God's free gift of grace through the faith of men, because salvation is by grace through faith, and for this reason, that God has unified all of his people and purified all of his people through the death of Jesus Christ. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for you Gentiles. Paul is saying this, Paul is saying I am a prisoner because of all these truths, and I'm a prisoner specifically for you Gentiles that are in the church. What does that mean specifically? Paul was a prisoner because he was a preacher of the gospel, but to truly understand this phrase, you have to understand the backstory. That's why we look at verse two. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace that God has given to me, which is given to me for you. He's saying some of you may not know my, my, my calling, Paul's business card, if he had one, would say, Paul, Apostle of Jesus Christ, and then underneath it would say, Apostle to the Gentiles, which was a very dangerous job description. I'll explain why. What Paul did as a preacher, he was an evangelist, he would travel from church to church in the entire Roman Empire and tell people about Jesus. For me, I'm a pastor, so I stay in one location. Paul went from church to church telling people about Jesus Christ, he's an evangelist. And as he did, wherever he went, he met the majority of people were Gentiles. Those, we talked about this last week, who are not Jewish in descent, they are non-Jewish or Gentile in descent, like my family. My family comes from Italy and and Lebanon. So Lebanon, being Persian or Middle Eastern, we are not Jewish in descent. I am a Gentile, many of you are as well. The Bible tells us, Paul said, my job, was to tell the Gentiles all about Jesus. And the more Paul traveled, the more Gentiles began to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, the problem with that was Paul was a Jewish religious leader. And when he went back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the Jewish religious leaders how God was working with the Gentiles, they had a big fight. The people in Jerusalem, the Jewish leadership said, if they're gonna believe in Jesus, they have to become Jewish first. And Paul's like, no, we don't need to worry about it. They're like, yes, Paul's like, no, we don't have to. And he's like, you better, or we're gonna put you in prison. And Paul said this, in, in Acts chapter 21 and 22, you can read about it. The apostle Paul said, no, the Gentiles are part of the family of God, just by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is for everybody. This was such a big problem that a riot broke out in the entire streets of Jerusalem. They took Paul, they chained him, threw him in prison, and they shipped him to to Rome, and then he would be killed for this very offense. So Paul now is suffering in prison because he stood up for people like you and me. The Gentiles who were welcomed into the family of God if they believed in Jesus Christ. What Paul is about to do is prove a point, and that is this. The more he did his ministry, the more he suffered, and the more he suffered, the more he could do his ministry. It was a cycle that God had him in. Look, he goes on. Go, look, look, look. This is beautiful. Verse number three. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. God revealed to the apostle Paul the mystery of what? That the Gentiles are now included in the family of God. As I have briefly written already, which he did in chapter two, verse four, it says, by which when you read you may understand the knowledge of the mystery of Christ, that Jesus is for everyone, verse five, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, that his people back in other time periods did not know that God was going to do this. as it is. Now been revealed by the Spirit, the holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. This mystery is finally revealed through, God, through me, by God, that the Gentiles are now part of the family, and, so, and the same body, and partakers, with, uh, uh, partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister. Now in verse 7, he finally hits his point, in verse 7, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul makes his connection. He says, the suffering I have endured for you is the ministry that God has given me. And the more I suffer, the more ministry I have to the Gentiles. And the more ministry I have to the Gentiles, the more I suffer. This, my friend, is a deep thought. Thought. So, I'll illustrate it. I don't get nervous preaching anymore. Anybody here um, get nervous public speaking? Anybody get nervous? Raise your hand, you get nervous? If I called you up right now and asked you to talk, how many of you would be like, don't do it? Some of you don't even want to raise your hand because you're like, I don't know where you're going with this, right? (laughs) I don't, I don't get nervous anymore uh, because I've done this for a long time. I've been a pastor now for like 17 years. I do this a lot. I like you, you really love me. Like it's a two-way street, right? We're, we're good, it's good. It's a very comfortable thing. Um, the only time I got nervous preaching a sermon recently was probably about five years ago. Five years ago, as I was studying the scripture, God put upon my heart very clearly to share part of my story that I had never shared with the church before and never shared it with the church, never had done so. And the reason I had not is because it's very personal and private to my story. I had gone through abuse as a child, sexual molestation by a a babysitter that came into our home. Now, it's something that only a few people in my life had been revealed to, and only a few people that needed to know, but God had made it really clear, this is the moment to share that. Why hadn't I not shared that for many years? Well, if you've ever experienced abuse, you know exactly why all of this will make sense to you. Here's why. Because when somebody experiences abuse, the first thing they experience afterward is shame. How strange is it that the person who's been victimized is the one who feels shame? How odd is that? But it is true. There's a secrecy that comes about because we want nobody to know what happened to us because maybe, somehow, somehow maybe it was my fault. Isn't that amazing that the devil lies to us in such a way? And so the shame leads to secrecy which leads to the second, third step and that is private suffering. Nobody knows the suffering. Nobody knows the struggle. Nobody knows those feelings. So we just hide that and we say it's in the past and we're not thinking about it. We cover and we don't talk about it. But God said to me, you need to share this part of your story for this particular sermon. I don't even remember what the sermon was about, but I do remember being nervous. <laughs> I get up here, I normally joke around, have a good time. I walked out that Sunday, I had my sermon notes, my Bible, and my, I'm just like, what are these people gonna think? Will I still be a pastor after today? Who knows? You know, you think weird thoughts. I start reading through. I read word for word the first 20 minutes of the sermon because, you know, I'm reading it silent. Nobody could look up, at the, up at the, in my eye, like many of you can't right now. And they looking up and looking down, and it was very odd, awkward to share my story. It wasn't my suffering, and it wasn't the revelation of my suffering. But it was after the revelation of my suffering that I began to understand that abuse leads to shame. Shame leads to private suffering. But private suffering can often lead to empathy and opportunity when shared. The old phrase is true, the truth shall set you free. And after I shared that, I was utterly amazed how many people began to come to me privately and share their story of abuse. Pastor, can I talk with you? Pastor, can we sit up? I want to go to coffee. Pastor, I just want to talk. I've been through so many of those conversations now. <laughs> um, I know exactly where it's going. We'll sit down, we'll have a cup of coffee, and uh, the man or the woman won't be able to look me in the eye. They're just like, hey, "Oh, good to see you here. I'm like, hey, how you doing today? What are we talking about? It's like, oh, I just wanted to hang out today. Anything you want to talk about? Just let me know. And eventually, they get to it, look me in the eye, and be like, hey, I want to tell you about what happened to me. And suddenly, this person is able to have somebody else bear their burden with them. As the Bible says in the book of Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I've been amazed that my suffering has opened the door for ministry. Once I embraced my suffering and I allowed it to be part of my story. It's not easy to do because of shame and private suffering. It's not easy to do because some people won't understand. I've had people in my own presence, very close people, in my own presence say to me, you can never leave a child alone with somebody who was abused. It's not easy to share your story because not everybody will understand. But when you do share your story, it opens wide the door to others who have the same journey. What I'm saying is exactly what Paul is saying. He uses chapter three verses one through 13 to connect to others who are also suffering by stating this truth. The suffering you're experiencing now is actually the ministry that God has planned for you. Number one, first thing he says, look more closely at the suffering you've been through. Could it be possible that your suffering is opening the door to opportunity ministry. Number two, the second truth that he wants us to see is that my suffering leads to maturity. Number one is absolutely the case. Your suffering leads to ministry. But number two, your suffering also leads to maturity. Do you agree with me that uh, (laughs) some of us need to grow up emotionally? Some of us need to grow up socially. Some of us need to grow up spiritually. If that's true, would you say amen? Some of you are looking around at other people. But it's all of us, we all need to grow. This is what we talk about quite a bit here, growing spiritually. If I were to ask you this question, who is the most spiritually mature person in all of the Bible? Who would you say? Yell out. Who is the most spiritually mature person in all of the New Testament? Somebody shout it out. Somebody shout it out. Who would it be? Somebody said Jesus. Who said Jesus? Raise your hand. Very good. This woman back here, she knows the right answer. She's like, I've been to Sunday school. Whenever in doubt, just say Jesus. Jesus is the right answer. Very good. (laughs) Very good. Congratulations, ma'am, you've really good, you've ruined my illustration. Yes, Jesus, of course, the most spiritual. After Jesus, somebody else, who is it? Somebody said it over here? Paul, the Apostle Paul. Yeah, yeah, the Apostle Paul, why? Because the Apostle Paul was the great leader of the Gentile church, as well as the Apostle Paul, he wrote much of the New Testament, very spiritually mature. We would all agree. In all of the New Testament, who is the ones who suffered the most? Well, we would say Jesus, and then after Jesus, Paul. What I find fascinating is the level of suffering that Paul goes through is directly linked to the spiritual maturity level that he experiences. The same thing is true, by the way, in the Old Testament with a man named Job. The more suffering Job goes through, the more spiritually mature an understanding he has about the spiritual world. Amazing. You can see this play out in the life of the Apostle Paul in verse eight and other passages. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter three and verse eight. It says, to me, what, to me was given what? Well, the ministry of the Gentiles. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, stop, stop, do you see what he says? Paul said, me, I am less than the least of all the saints. How many of you are Christians? If you are, say amen, Amen. all right. How many of you are one of the better Christians? Paul would have said, not me. Paul would have said, I'm one of the least of the, in fact, I'm I'm the least, no, I'm less than the least of all the Christians. Wow, that's humility and maturity. But it goes on, this grace was given to me that I should preach among the Gentiles, that's his ministry, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Stop, unsearchable riches of Christ, Underline that and remember it. That's what uh, next week's sermon, sermon number four, is all about. I can't get into it now, just mark it down. We're gonna come back to that next week. I want you to focus on the phrase, less than the least of all the saints. Why? Because this is the way Paul sees himself at this point in his life. Are you a Christian, Paul? Yes! Are you a good one? Not really. Maybe you're here today and you're like, that's me, Pastor, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not a great one. You're actually doing better than you think. If you're here today and you're like, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm one of the better ones, you're not doing nearly as well as you think you are. <laughs> I'm serious, I'm as serious as I can be. The more you think of yourself, the less you're actually thinking of God. Let me show you what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul refers to himself three times throughout his ministry. The first time he does that I see in Scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse nine. He calls himself the least of the apostles. Paul, are you an apostle? Yes, I am, but I'm like the lower one. You know Peter, James, and John, I'm below them. You know Thaddeus, you've never even heard of Thaddeus. I'm below him. He's like, I am the least of the apostles. Later on in Ephesians chapter three and verse eight, he calls himself less than the least of all the saints. Amazing. He goes from I'm the least of the apostles to I am the least of all the saints, less than the least of all the saints. The third time he refers to himself is in 1 Timothy chapter one, he calls himself the chief of all sinners. Even worse, are are, are you a sinner? I'm the worst sinner that ever was. What's even more fascinating to me about this is how old he was at each and every one of these statements. See, he calls himself the least of the apostles at the age of 49. He calls himself the least of all the saints at the age of 56. And he calls himself the chief of sinners at the age of 59. What does that tell you? That tells you this, the longer he walked with Jesus, the less he thought of himself as great. The longer he walked with Jesus, the more humble and the more spiritually mature he became. Friend, I I hate to burst your bubble, but if you're walking around thinking, I'm the greatest Christian and everybody better follow my example, you are not following Jesus you're following some other cultish, weird thought. Those who actually walk with Jesus throughout their life and truly study the Word of God, throughout their life they become more humble, they become more spiritually mature, they become less, while Jesus becomes more. Can I get an amen? Amen. Say, what's the point? Suffering. Look at Paul's life suffering after suffering after suffering after suffering, and what happens to him decade after decade after decade, he becomes more and more like Christ. I'm telling you as much as I possibly can, as clear as I possibly can, if you look closely at your suffering, you'll not only see opportunity for ministry, you're going to see your maturity level growing. I was that kind of kid. You remember that kind of kid who would just always say something, the wrong thing at the right time? How many of you had a group of friends and there was a kid that would always be saying something to the wrong person and it would get the entire group in trouble? This was me. And the reason was is because I was surrounded by my brother and the older, bigger guys. I was never the biggest kid, but I always had the biggest mouth. You know what I mean? You know the kid? That was me. And there was always a group and I was like, best way to describe it is like, I was surrounded by pit bulls, we were on the same team and I was the chihuahua, you know what I mean? Like- I'm telling you the truth. You ask, you ask my brothers and sisters if this is not, this is absolutely accurate the way I was. Between the ages of eight and about 14, I had what was called, what do I call, the little man syndrome. I always gotta prove that I'm bigger than I am. And so all the time, I'd be spouting off. Somebody wanna say something? I'm the one who said it. I'm gonna say whatever. And I always had the right thing to say at the very wrong time. And, and, and that got me into a lot of fights. It got a lot of us into a lot of fights. The problem was sometimes I would speak and I would have guys that were there to back me up. Sometimes I would speak and I had no nobody, which means I had to back up my own words, and often what that means is that somebody took their fist and they put it in my mouth. <laughs> I got hit a lot because my mouth would not shut up. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know personally what I'm talking about. Have you ever, have you ever seen an adult man who constantly talks and you think, so, that guy has not been hit in the mouth enough, you know what I mean? <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? No, for real. Like, like the reason, I'm hand to God. The reason I am not that guy is because I got hit in the mouth by a bunch of neighborhood kids, plenty. Now, it's not that I don't think of the thing to say, oh, I think of it. I'm just more mature enough to not say it anymore. My suffering has led to maturity. Friend, what you're going through, what you've been through, provides you an open door for ministry. Just look at it, do you see it? It also provides you an opportunity to grow, to be mature like never before, do you see that? And that leads us to our third thought about suffering that Paul wants to explain to the Ephesians and that is my suffering reveals the mystery of God. My suffering reveals the mystery of God. The problem I have with the first two points of the sermon is that they are both theologically self-centric. What I mean by that is, you need to know this because it makes you feel better about your situation. Nothing wrong with it. It's what the text says. The third part is not theologically self-centric. It's saying this. It's saying what you're about to learn, it's not about you. You suffer because God's doing something bigger than you. Are you spiritually mature enough to grasp this truth that I'm about to say? Life is not about you. You understand? Do you know why there are certain sermons that really connect and certain sermons that don't? It's because those certain sermons that connect to our modern audience, they're all about you. If you know this and you do this and you do all these things, this is how you'll understand you more. We, don't, we like self-centric sermons. The third part of this sermon is not self-centric. It's saying, you need to know this because it'll explain God. Friend, hear this, this is so important. The reason you suffer is not just so that you have a ministry. The reason you suffer is not just so that you mature. The reason you suffer is because when you do, it reveals God and it points people to Jesus. And that, honestly, is more important than the other two. What? Look at verse nine. Paul explains his suffering. He goes on. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. There it is. I go through these things and I go through these things. Why? To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. There are others that God wants to reveal the mystery of grace to. There are others who need to know about the chair. There are others who need to know about the goat. There are others who are in the family of Adam that need to be placed in the family of Christ. And the only way they're going to see the mystery and reveal the mystery of God's grace is to watch you suffer. And as they watch you suffer, they will be drawn to Christ. Look, it goes on, which was from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. That is, all of this mystery had not yet been revealed until Jesus Christ came. Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. That is, the unified church, when we as a church are unified, when the family of God universally is unified, it reveals the mystery of God's grace. We talked about that last week. But it also reveals that not only to mankind, this is amazing. The sufferings of the followers of God, it reveals it to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Principalities and powers is another way of saying angels and demons. When God's people suffer, it reveals God's grace and power and majesty and glory to the world around us as well as the spiritual world above us. This is the story of Job, if you read read it and study it. It's not about you. It's about the fact that you are a small part of God's storyline. And some of our sufferings play into that storyline. It goes on. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose. What eternal purpose? The purpose from chapter two, to unite all mankind in one family under Christ, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord at the cross, in whom also we have boldness and access and confidence through faith in him. That is, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have boldness and access to God in the midst of this suffering. What does this mean? It means this. If you look closely at your suffering, you will find ministry opportunity. If you look closely at your suffering, you'll find your maturity level is growing. But if you look closely at your suffering, you'll find that it is bringing God glory and revealing the mystery of grace to the world around you and the spiritual world you have yet to see. You just have to look closely. I say it this way in counseling. When I counsel or when I mentor young men, I talk about the fact that the chessboard of life. A lot of times we think of the chessboard of life and we think, I'm the chess master. You're not the chess master. Jesus is the chess master. You're the pawn. I don't like thinking of myself as a pawn. Well, then think of yourself differently. I'm just telling you the truth. (laughs) If you don't like to think of yourself as a pawn, make yourself a knight or a queen. How many of you are a queen, right? Some of you are knights, right? Okay, that's fine. The point is he's the guy in charge, and he picks you up and moves you and places you wherever he wants to. That's why we call him Lord. That's why we call him Master. Do you understand, Christian? (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I'm not connecting on this point. Pastor, please tell me how I can use Jesus as my servant. Pastor, please tell me how Jesus is in a a bottle and anytime I need him, I just rub it and he comes out and he gives me three wishes. Tell me about that Jesus. The problem is that Jesus doesn't exist. Go find a religion somewhere that will lie to you and tell you there's a God who wants to serve you. God loves your soul. He died upon the cross to pay for your soul. He demonstrates that constantly by bowing down and washing your feet. He loves you, but you are saved by him, and you are called his servant, not the other way around, which means you're on the chessboard, which means when he wants to pick you up and put you here for your good and for his glory, he does it. He does it. And so Paul is looking at them saying, I know you're worried about my suffering, but I'm totally cool with the fact and I've come to the realization, he's the chess master. He can put me in prison if he wants to. Why? Because here I am in prison. More people are getting saved and the gospel's going out and if he wants to take my head, he can take my head. If he needs to sacrifice a pawn to win the game, I'm the pawn he can sacrifice. For those who are new to this, that's true Christianity right there. Amen. Now, what do we do with this? <sighs> the best verse in the entire passage is verse 13. I saved it for last. So did Paul. Look at what he says. Therefore, I ask you to do th- therefore I ask that you do not lose heart. Look, don't lose heart, Paul says, at my tribulation or your own tribulation. This is your glory. Don't you understand one day, 10,000 years from now, in the eternal kingdom of God, all that will matter because of the suffering that you've endured, regardless of what circle of suffering you've gone through, grasp this truth, grasp it. It was for your ministry, it was for your maturity, and it was to advance the mystery of the gospel to the world around you. And that's why when we get into heaven, we won't be walking around talking about how great each other are. (laughs) We're gonna walk around saying, isn't God amazing that he would save us? And look at how cool his plan worked all together for good, even through my suffering. That is a proper theological Christian understanding of suffering and why bad things happen to good people. So what does that mean for me? All right, very simple, this. When you suffer, or when you see your children suffer, or you see your friends and family suffering, if they are followers of Christ, you say, let's take a little closer look. As we look, this opens ministry. This helps build maturity. And this is all to reveal the mystery of God's goodness and glory and grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for the deep theological truths you've given us today. It's gonna take us some time to comprehend, it's gonna take us some time to digest, to work through these thoughts. I am thankful because these are the truths that bring such great inner peace, that we can trust you because you do all things for our good and most importantly for your glory. Bless us now as we contemplate and spend time thinking through these things with you. In Jesus' name we pray.